should we care about racial equity and justice in American society? It sounds like a basic question, but it's also a question that's maybe harder to answer than you might expect or has layers or complexities to it that perhaps at first glance you might miss. It's a question that actually has caused a fair amount of debate and controversy among faithful, Bible-loving, gospel-preaching Christians. Not because anybody would suggest that racial injustice is a good thing or that the, the church of Jesus should not care about um, hurting people and should not seek to alleviate suffering. There's not debate so much about those basic things, but the realities of what race means, the realities of the, the boundaries, if you will, of the mission of the church of Jesus Christ, these things come into uh, discussion when the question is asked, should the church care about racial equity and justice in American society? So I am asking a particular question. I'm not saying should the church care about racial harmony, racial equity within the church. That should be obvious. That should not require a discourse or a sermon or a Bible study. We know that the, the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ is multicultural, multilingual, multicolored because we have this very powerful vision in Revelation chapter 7 of a multitude from every people and tribe and nation and language on the earth worshiping Jesus together around his throne. We know that's where this is all headed. So there's no question about what racial unity ought to be in the church. The question is when we're looking at the society, when we're looking at the world around us, when we see cities on fire because of racial tensions, what should the church think? What should the church say? What should the church do? Is the church of Jesus Christ tasked in any sense with working for the blessing and good of this temporary earthly kingdom that we call the United States of America? Do Christians have any responsibility to the secular, even godless world around us? That's a question that is receiving a lot of attention. And at times, I think, a bit more heat than light. People feel very strongly about these issues, but perhaps you're not rightly applying the truths of God's Word to it. I think we need to ask this question and seriously look to God's Word for an answer. I recently watched a video, a short video, maybe five or so minutes, of a prominent evangelical pastor. I don't want to name names because I don't intend to disparage anybody. I, a prominent evangelical pastor is asked a similar question, namely, how the church should respond particularly to Black Lives Matter as a movement and to racial divisions and injustices in our society more broadly. And he begins, this pastor's answer to the question starts by calling it a non-issue. He says, if the church is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's a sense in which this doesn't even exist as an issue. And then he continues... 
speaking of his own perspective and his own priorities as a pastor. He says, I can't fix racial injustices. I can't fix people who feel like they're disenfranchised. I can't fix the history of the world. I can't rewrite American history. I can't take anger out of people who feel like they're being flooded with Muslim Arabs who are changing their culture. I can't fix that. And he goes on to speak of his own responsibility, his own priority. He says, my responsibility is to preach the gospel, throw my arms open to receive the ones the Lord has chosen, and embrace that with complete and full joy. The object of life is no longer to fix past injustices. The object of life is now to proclaim Christ to whomever. And I just will not give up, give that up for another agenda. I'm not going to say, now you're a believer, I'm going to send you back into a pre-salvation world and ask you if you can fix that. It just can't be done. I'd rather say, you've come to Christ, you are now a missionary for the gospel. Once they come to Christ, that is the people that these new Christians are now evangelizing, once they come to Christ, all other issues fall away. They just disappear and the gospel takes prominence. As much as I respect this particular pastor and have benefited from his teaching and ministry over the years, and as nice as this notion sounds, that if once you become a Christian, all other issues just disappear. I think his answer, and answers like it, miss something profound about God's redemptive purposes in our world through his church. And I think we get a glimpse of God's heart for the world we live in in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. You have a copy of God's word, which I hope you do. I invite you to turn there now to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah, of course, is one of the Old Testament prophets. So if you go to Psalms and Proverbs and flip a little bit to your right, you'll run into Jeremiah pretty soon. Jeremiah chapter 29 is where we'll be today. A little bit of context for Jeremiah 29 so we understand what we're hearing. Jeremiah's prophetic ministry is uh, takes place in the period leading up to Israel's Babylonian captivity. This is a period of time when as a judgment from God on Israel's rebellion and idolatry, God raises up the powerful nation of Babylon to conquer and to capture the people of Israel who are living in the land of Judah. And through, the, through Jeremiah, God speaks a series of messages uh, foretelling what was to come in their impending capture and exile in Babylon and their eventual return to the land of Judah after 70 years. So as these things begin to come about, if you place yourselves in the shoes of the people of Israel at that time, as these things begin to happen, the people would have concrete evidence of God's faithfulness to his word and his sovereign rule over their lives. Oh yeah, he told us this was going to happen. He gave us this warning. He gave us these messages. When we come to chapter 29, God's people have been ripped from their home in Judah and displaced in the city of Babylon, which is the center of this Babylonian empire, under the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, one of the more fun names in the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar. I challenge anybody to name their kid that. This displacement actually occurred in several waves. 
beginning in 607 BC and then over the next 20 or so years um, with the final siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple there in 586 BC. So in Jeremiah 29, Yahweh has instructed Jeremiah to write a letter to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Jeremiah himself is still in Jerusalem. And so he writes and sends a letter to the exiles in Babylon around 597. This would be the second of those three waves of, uh, of exiles being taken there. In order to instruct them regarding what to expect from their period of exile, how to conduct themselves during their time in Babylon, and to remind them that God had not, indeed, forgotten his covenant with them, as perhaps it appeared that he had. So with that in mind, I'm going to read for you Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. We're going to zero in on just a couple of these verses in the middle of this passage, but I do want you to see, uh, for context, the flow of these 14 verses. So follow along with me as I read for you Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen and the metalworkers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gomeria, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. All right, all that is just saying, here's the letter Jeremiah is writing to the Babylonian exiles during this period of time. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and will bring you back to this place, being Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Two clear expressions of God's grace to his people that I can see readily in this letter, at least this portion of the letter. The letter actually continues. But two clear ways that God is showing his grace to his people at this point in time where they have rebelled 
and worshipped false gods and made unholy alliances with godless nations, and he is not pleased with them. Nevertheless, his grace comes in two distinct ways. Number one, he braces them for a long period of exile. They were thinking that perhaps this was all just a short little detour and that in a very uh, short time, God would have them back in their promised land. Uh, in fact, they had some assurances along those lines from false prophets. He references those in verses 8 and 9, as we just read. He says, don't listen to the dreams that these prophets dream. They're telling you lies. They're not from me. You think, well, what were those false prophets and what were they saying? Well, one of them we actually had recorded in the chapter before this, chapter 28, a false prophet by the name of Hananiah promises the people of Israel that God would return Israel to their land within two years. In less than two years, this yoke will be broken and you will be back in your land. That was a prophet in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying to the people, only two years. No big deal, right? You have this assurance from God that it will only be two years. And God here through Jeremiah tells them, don't listen. This is not true. This is not from me. And in fact, we have confirmation uh, that that prophecy was not true because chapter 28 ends with God striking Hananiah dead for lying to his people in his name. So, not the case. And so God corrects them here. God gives them accurate information about what's to come. And the kind of instructions he gives, the kinds of commands he gives to the people have the net effect of settle in. Right? Get ready for a long life here. Generations of life here. Put down roots. Cultivate life. Family. We see at least three generations they're reflected in uh, in this instruction in verse 5, right? Or verse 6. He says, take wives and have sons and daughters. So there's two generations. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. So three generations worth of God's people are will be living in Babylon, right? Don't live outside the city. Don't set up tents that are temporary thinking you're going to be out of here soon. No, set up life here. Build houses, cultivate gardens, right? Have kids, let their kids have kids, right? Build a family legacy and a family history in exile. So he's telling them, this ain't no two-year detour, friends. This is going to be a while. Settle in. And then he explicitly reveals the length of the exile down in verse 10. He says, after 70 Years When 70 years are completed, I will visit you and will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So he explicitly reveals to them, we're not talking two years, we're talking 70 years. It's a long time. That's enough time for somebody to grow old and to watch their children grow and to have grandchildren. This is three generations of life in exile. The second way, so he's braced them for a long period of exile. The second way he expresses his grace to them is in assuring them of his future kindness. He has not forgotten them. He tells them in verse 10 he will return them to their land. He tells them in verse 11 in one of those famous sort of pillow crocheted verses, uh, I will give you a future and a hope. I have plans for your good and not for your harm. You're probably familiar with that verse. In the context, of course, he's speaking to Israel in exile, saying, I'm going to restore you to the land 
of Canaan, the land of Judah. He tells them he's going to renew his covenant relationship with them. That language in verses 12 and 13 is all about covenant. When he says, you will call upon me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations. This is the warmth of relationship between a covenant-keeping God and his often unfaithful people. So he reminds them of his future grace to them. I'm not done with you. You have a long period of exile. Get, Make yourselves at home, right? But I'm not finished. You will be restored to your land and to our covenant relationship. So that's essentially the instructions that he gives at the beginning of this period of exile. I want to highlight verses really 5 through 7 and consider specifically how I believe that these truths apply to the church today, not just to Old Covenant Israel in Babylon. The first notion to bring up is the notion of the the welfare of Babylon. You see in verse 7, he said, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. The The word welfare translates the Hebrew word shalom, which perhaps you've heard before. It's often translated peace, but it means much more than that. It's a full-throated, full-bodied vision of justice and righteousness and well-being, of of, of goodness. And he says here that the, the people of Israel in exile in Babylon are to seek the shalom of Babylon, which is not a godly place. They're idol worshipers. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, would set up statues and demand people worship him. You're probably familiar with the story of of Daniel and his friends who received new names in Babylon, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and they're commanded to bow down and worship an idol to this king, and they refuse to do it. So they're thrown into a furnace. God miraculously saves them. All of that happens within the context of this Babylonian exile. They are in this godless, pagan, idol-worshiping city, And God says, seek their welfare. What does that look like? Well, he gives them a few particular instructions. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat the produce. Right? This is the ordinary stuff of settled life in a community, isn't it? This is what you do when you live in a place. You make yourselves at home. You build a house. You uh, plant Gardens, that is, you do work, you, you produce things. Live a basically normal life, he says to his people, even as a sojourner, as a captive in a strange and godless land that is not your home. Even more than that, he says, you should actually add value to the city itself. We see value in the building of homes, new homes to be lived in, in the tending of gardens and the fresh produce that would come from that. Find a job, produce something, start businesses, put something into the world that will enrich the people who live there. Build, cultivate, seek its shalom, seek its well-being. This is the command of God to his people Israel in their city of exile. 
seek their good, seek their welfare. So the people of Israel were to have the shalom of Babylon, the welfare of Babylon in their minds and to actually kind of arrange their lives around that reality. Second thing he calls them to do is to pray. Pray for Babylon, right? Again in verse 7. Wow, the wind turned a lot of pages for me. In verse 7 he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray to the Lord on behalf of Babylon. Amazing. The empire who conquered Jerusalem, who dragged away its inhabitants as captives, who have wicked leaders who demand worship and homage be paid to false gods. God wants the Jews to pray on its behalf for its welfare, for its shalom. Pray and ask God to do good and great things for the city where I've sent you into exile. And then the final observation that he makes there in verse 7 is this. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Right? Babylon's welfare, in some sense, is Israel's welfare. If there's famine in Babylon, guess what? There's famine among the people of God. If there's prosperity in Babylon, the people of God... Enjoy that prosperity. Seek the good of the city. Seek the well-being, the welfare, the shalom of the city because its shalom is your shalom. Why does God want them to seek the welfare of Babylon? As it goes with the city, so it goes with God's people. As Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, says on this passage, every passenger is concerned in the safety of the ship. Right? If the ship goes down, we all drown with it. Right? So we want to keep the ship afloat. So what does all this have to do with us? Right? What does this have to do with the church? So this is some commands at a particular time, at a particular place to the people of Israel in Babylon. Well, we don't live in Babylon, right? We're not Jews. We're not the people of, of, of Israel. We live in a very different time and century. What does this have to do with us? Well, glad you asked. We spent the first half of this year looking through the book of 1 Peter in which we are addressed as God's elect exiles, as aliens and sojourners in a world where we don't belong, a world that does not welcome us as its own. In 1 Peter 2.12, Peter urges Christians to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Who is that? Pagans, people who do not know God and do not worship God. He wants them to see the good deeds of the church and thereby worship God, perhaps themselves be converted, and perhaps just in terms of judgment. When God comes to judge, they've been given no excuse because the righteousness of God has been lived out among them by the people of God. So he calls his church as exiles to live as a light, as a witness in the place where God has, has planted them. If our true citizenship is in heaven, as Paul tells us in Philippians 3.20, and if we are to regard ourselves as exiles and sojourners in this world, then we must also take note of the fact that God has placed us here, not by accident, but by a wise and loving providence to carry out his will in the place where we are in exile. That's where we live. We spend a lot of time and money and energy trying to make ourselves real comfortable here, but it's not our true and lasting home, is it? Nevertheless, 
for these 70 years that you're in exile, build houses, plant gardens, have kids, right? We're in exile. This is the place where we're not at home. And as long as God has us here in this exilic city, whether you take that literally to mean Baltimore or more broadly to mean the United States or really any kingdom on the earth before Christ returns, we are intended to be here for a light to the nations. If it was true of Israel in captivity in Babylon that they were to seek the good, the welfare, the peace, the justice of that godless city, then I contend that it is no less true that Christ intends His covenant people, the church that He purchased with His own blood, to actively, intentionally, and diligently seek the welfare of the place of our sojourn. So a quick review of Psalm, uh, excuse me, of Jeremiah 29, verses 5-7, through 7, with an eye toward application to the church. Just going back through the very same things we looked at, but thinking about what that might mean for us. The first is a productive life in the city. Verse 5, right? He says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, right? Create something, start businesses, produce goods and services for people around you to enjoy and benefit from. Settle down. Live in homes in your city. Don't expect that you're going to be here just a short while. We shouldn't all be on a mountainside watching the heavens expecting Jesus to come back at any moment. We want to live ready for that. We want to pray and plead that he would come. I find myself doing that more and more as these days go by. But we live here. We're at home here. We make ourselves a part of the community and the economy and and the relationships of, of the city around us. Seek their good. God intends for us to plant ourselves where he has sent us and to live within these boundaries as kingdom citizens. So he doesn't just say, imbibe the values and the views of the culture around you, right? We're to live as kingdom citizens. We're to embody the values of Christ's kingdom, which are really upside down from the world's values in a lot of ways. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. But we're to live as kingdom citizens in this earthly, temporal kingdom. And to seek and to be productive, to live a productive life here. Number two, I'd say building a legacy in the city. I see that in verse six. I see the legacy in the generations. Multiply, have sons and daughters, let them have sons and daughters. Do not decrease, right? What are you doing as you're having kids? You're teaching them. You're you're sharing with them your vision and values that are shaped by the kingdom of God. You're, You're raising up a new generation to trust and follow Christ and to be armed with the gospel and to be ambassadors for the kingdom in this broken place of exile. Raise up kids. Pass on the gospel. Raise up a new generation that are ready to serve people for Christ. There's no room here for doomsday pessimism. To keep Christians from having children and raising a new generation to know the Lord and do His work, right? The world is on fire. Things are terrible. Maybe we should stop having kids and just let this whole thing come to an end, right? You might be inclined. There might be some that are tempted in that direction, but God says no. Have children. Let your children have children. Build a legacy of godliness and faithfulness and gospel proclamation for generations in your place of exile. Cultivate a legacy of generations of faithful Christ followers who are armed 
to do good for their city. Number three, seeking shalom for the city. Seeking shalom, again, encompassing justice and righteousness and goodness and blessings and prosperity and peace. We should seek and desire that for our cities. To seek the city's good, let me say this, to seek the city's good, we have to know what's wrong in the city and care about it. We have to observe what's wrong and care enough to speak, to move, to love. Where there is injustice, Christians should look for ways to take up the cause of those who are oppressed and mistreated in the church or out of the church. The author Anne Rice said this a few years ago, having herself converted to faith in Christ. She said, Christians have lost credibility in America as people who know how to love. Is she right? I hope not. Is our practice of loving our neighbor, pointing unbelievers around us toward redemption in Jesus Christ or repelling them away from him? We need to keep those questions in mind. Are we living in such a way to commend Christ and his kingdom in the city where we live? Number four, praying for the city. Just as God called Israel to pray for Babylon, he calls his church today to pray for the nation and the city and the state and the region and the world where we live. This is one of the absolute best things that we can do. One of the absolute most powerful things we can possibly do is to link our minds and hearts with God's purposes and say, God, will you do good and great things for the sake of the city, for the honor of your name? So let me ask you, how is your prayer life when it comes to the welfare of our city, of our state, our nation? Are we spending more time wringing our hands in anxiety over the state of our union or pleading with the sovereign God in prayer to do great things here, to bring about peace, to bring an end to violence and oppression and racism? to cause righteousness and justice, to govern the leaders who govern us, to strengthen and rebuild broken down families in our communities. Are we praying, pleading with God to do this for the honor of his name, for the welfare of the city where he has sent us into exile? Finally, a reminder that the welfare of the city is in some way the welfare of the church. Leviticus 19.18, which is quoted in Luke 10 that we looked at last week, love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that command? It appears that loving our city is a way that we love ourselves. The city's welfare affects the church's welfare. Right? When there's prosperity and peace in the city, then the church enjoys relative peace and stability. That's why there are so many concerns, I think, right concerns over religious liberty and things like that. And as we see certain freedoms that we're used to enjoying in America as Christians being minimized or the boundaries sort of coming a little closer, we start to get nervous. Oh no, it's getting harder for us to practice our faith without uh, consequences, right? It's good to seek the welfare of the city because it affects the welfare of the church. 
Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that in times of oppression or persecution or distress, that God isn't building his church. We've seen throughout history that in hard times, in dire seasons, when the church is pressed and persecuted, God builds his church. But as long as, as we, as Christians, are living in a context where we have the freedom and resources to engage, engage in a whole range of shalom and justice kinds of activities, then we should do all we can to provide obvious, tangible benefit to the place where we're living in exile. Injustice and inequity in the society should be a concern for the people of God because it has to do with the welfare of the city. It has to do with the shalom of the place where God has sent his church into exile. It has to do with the very heart of God himself who takes up the cause of the oppressed, who is a father to the fatherless, who defends the widow So I answer the question at the beginning, should the church care about racial injustice in American society? Yes, we should. Now, does that mean the primary mission of the church becomes fixing the world around us? No. In fact, more on that next week. I'm planning to talk more explicitly from Matthew 28 and the Great Commission about what the church is primarily called to do and what some of the shapes of that calling might take. So we're not primarily a, a social betterment organization, right? We're not just a, a, a welfare group in the sense of just wanting to be nice and hand things out. But to the extent that we understand God's heart, to the extent that we recognize our sentness as exiles here in the United States, in Baltimore, Maryland, then we will care about the welfare of our city, which means injustices within its bounds are not out of bounds for Christian concern and action. This very book of prophecy, Jeremiah chapter 23, God gives his people a gracious and powerful foretelling of what he will do for them. In Jeremiah chapter 23, he says, Behold, days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Friends, he's not talking about any Hebrew king that would live in the days B.C. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah of God who would come for his people and establish a kingdom where perfect justice would reign. That's how he characterizes the reign of this king. By the way, for those who say that the church should never get political, Jesus is Lord is a political statement. Jesus' is king is as political as it gets. We declare our allegiance to a king and a kingdom that far transcends this earthly one. And so 
all the while that we live in this place of exile, even seeking the welfare of our neighbors and the good of our city, we are to have our eye on the Lord Jesus, the King who came to give His life for His people. The King who came to conquer death, not with a sword, but with a cross. The King who humbled Himself to the point of death so that our unrighteousness, our injustice might be covered and forgiven and cleansed. And that we might be restored to His heart of justice and righteousness. By His death and resurrection, Christ has secured for us an eternal residence in the city that is to come, Hebrews 13, 14 calls it, whose designer and builder is God, Hebrews eleven ten. We know that this is our true home, that this is where righteousness and justice will truly reign and all the brokenness and distortions in this world will finally be made right. The city where Christ reigns as king without opponent and all injustices are made right. So do we expect that our efforts on behalf of our city today will result in some perfect utopia of joy and light and happiness and unfailing justice? Of of course not. Of course not. But if God plants His church in cities like Baltimore and urges us as exiles to seek its welfare, its shalom, then surely we can't regard injustices here as a non-issue or expect them to just disappear when we start preaching the gospel. As ambassadors of the gospel of grace, let's seek to be those who apply that grace toward our Babylon.